Welcome to Built for Marketing Talks, a podcast where we explore key industry challenges with experts who understand them best. My name is Jules Quested-Williams. I'm the director of Built for Marketing, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by three guests. We have David Fribbins from Randy, who is a specialist in grant funding and tax credits. We also have Todd Altman, who is a CEO and engineer with a vast knowledge and experience of building products. He's definitely a specialist and has engaged BFM for a number of years. And finally, we have Simon Clapel, who is a product designer and the founder of Clipsafe. Welcome to you all. Today, we are exploring technology, investment, and the importance of this within the construction industry. So, shall I kick off? And I, I'm going to ask the why question, which is always a good place to start, I think. is So, why do you think it's important to invest in innovation? You know, be it people, knowledge, uh, experience, or just, you know, product research and development itself. And it'd probably be ask you to kick off, Todd, from, from your position where is that why for you? It's a, it's a broad question, isn't it, Jules? Why why is it important to in, to invest in innovation? And from my sort of background in building materials, I, I've always found that that as we innovate, we're we're driving the competitiveness of the business through creating efficiencies. So we're always looking when we're innovating for how the product um, can change to to improve. The customer experience of, of the products we're selling and improve efficiencies in on sites or in usage, um, but also improve efficiencies in manufacturing and, and the competitiveness where we're going to sell. So I think, you know, it, it, it's it's that old sort of saying, isn't it? You know, standing still is going backwards. So for me, you've always got to be looking at the market, looking at what the market requires looking for opportunities to to drive efficiencies for, for your customers and for yourself. No, I think that's fair. I mean, straight away, we're, we're talking about efficiency, which leads to cost, I guess. And, and, and that's where the investment side comes in. David, from your experience, the why for you with innovation, where is that being driven for a lot of your conversations in the sector? I think it, it runs deep. If you, if you look at humanity's history, the, the gap between picking up a stick and clubbing our neighbor through to agricultural revolution to the bronze age, the, the gaps are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think that when you look at it from a business perspective, you've got the cutting edge and, and out competing your, your competitor, your competition. Yeah, absolutely. But I think from a, when, when you look at it almost from HMRC side, from the government side, we, we have to be competitive on a global market. And the, the easiest way to do that is to incentivize businesses to take risks, to, to take those next steps. And it, it's a common thing. If, if, if we're able to make the next tech advance, if we're able to make the next, the next best product for construction, we can export that. We, we hold the IP. Um, and that really, it, you've got competitive advantage, but you've also got moving humanity forward, um, which, which is driven by the, the free market and, and business, really. No, I think that's fair. And, and bringing you in, Simon, into the conversation, I almost want to say why not for you, because obviously your lifeblood is, is creativity and, and being head of that innovation. You know, where do the whys come for for you? From my very, very most earliest experiences, as soon as you start thinking through the why, why are we doing something a certain way and raising that question, you're suddenly triggered into thinking about ways of how things could be done better and that raises an awful lot more whys 
But why is it important in the general sense? I think even if you're not being directly innovative towards a specific solution, if you're looking at what we currently do and looking at ways of saving costs in the production process, it's innovation and design that can lead to improvements, significant improvements there via changes to the product. Very simple little steps can sometimes impact a business, reduce the overall costs of manufacture, which means that you're suddenly a more competitive player in the marketplace. The wonderful thing about the British, well, about the, you know, the European patent system at the moment is that, of course, um, you, you can also protect yourselves and guarantee that business over a number of years and, uh, as it's exported around the world. And so the overall impact works on many levels in many different ways, all of them beneficial. I think the really interesting point of the conversation on all of, all of our, our conversation here is that a lot of this is down to motivation and people as well. You know, within a team of people, you've got to have uh, the Simon Clapel is going to be motivated, has been enthused. I mean, and how do you drive that through a business? Because uh, really, you do need to have people coming along on that journey with you. Maybe, Todd, you can think, pick up think, on that. Yes, I think motivations are really interesting. I mean, that's the, the sort of other side of why, isn't it? And, and it's interesting. What's motivating uh, innovation at, at, at the moment? And, I, and I'd say... In, in most of the businesses I'm looking at at the moment, a lot of the motivation isn't money related. It's about issues such as safety and environment and environment impact. So for instance, can you design a product that stops somebody having to work at height, you know, that, and therefore you know, gets rid of that problem and that cost and that management time that, that is involved in that? Can you, can you design a product that is more more efficient in the fuel it uses, etc. So there's it's it's interesting that I think there's a lot of different motivations in the, in businesses at the moment, and and you know to to David's point, a lot of those a lot of those things are are coming at us from a sort of a global perspective, but also from a sort of government perspective and incentives to to do different things within the business. So you know what when you sort of say why do it, why why innovate. And what are we innovating on? It's not just products, is it? It's 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 absolutely the the way we do things and the way we act and the way we the way that our businesses or or the products we make impact in in different in different ways. Yeah, I think David, you've probably got can pick up on that. I, I think, and also I was going to ask you, sort of forwarding it on to you as well, David. But one of the things that uh, Todd picked up on was um, maybe there's sustainable elements of that motivation so it'd be really interested to hear your thoughts yeah i mean to uh, to almost pull it back a step before answering the question you just asked um from what todd was saying it, it's interesting where you've got different stages of innovation that mean different things to different companies which i think was mentioned by simon but for for a massive conglomerate like a, a giant like ford for instance as a, as a manufacturer they're looking into lots of environmental sustainability goals they're, they're at the absolute cutting edge of innovation but it's, it's worth remembering that at the very local level where you've got SMEs that are starting up, getting in, or have been around for a long time, but are, very, are still using paper, innovation can be localized. So a company suddenly going digital and bringing a CRM system on board, it, it's not innovative for the industry, but it's innovative for the business itself. And it, 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 it is a weird 
sort of dynamic where we, we like to go straight to the really super sexy. We're making a car that can drive itself and it talks to a satellite and is never going to crash. Um, but at the same time, a, a business going paperless is still an innovation that we we need to support and be looking to, to drive forward as well. So that was a, just a, a, a counter thought of, of one of the other considerations in it. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I guess that's also something that, Simon, you pick up on quite regularly. It's those small tweaks of someone who who doesn't want to make a huge investment but does make a difference for that business from a from a product design perspective one of the key things that you observe being embedded into the process of technical and creative development of any new solution is that you realize when it's ready and it's done the creative process doesn't end there because what it does create, and it harks back to what David was alluding to, is that suddenly you have a new business opportunity. Because you've identified the unmet needs of the end user, you've created a new scope of use, which means you don't need three men to install a product. You only need one, and it's done in 30 seconds rather than 30 minutes. It allows you to sit back and suddenly say, how are we selling this? What's our modus operandi? What's our, what is our route to market? And you very, really quickly can often realize this is an opportunity to change the way we actually do business. So through design and innovation, you can suddenly impact the business in a very holistic way and in a very take it in a very new and healthy direction, whereby you're suddenly changing a route to market, changing how the end users can buy the product and uh, you've already changed the way they use the product and reduce the amount of time and skill required in the final stage and that I find is very interesting because when you suddenly set up this new web modus operandi you it gives you an opportunity to look at all the existing products in the portfolio and say why haven't we done that before should we do it with some of the other stuff and just a little example, it's jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, for me, I am absolutely surprised at the moment that more companies in the construction sector aren't adopting QR codes on materials delivered to site. Because quite often, the, 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 the technical support desks and the sales desks within organisations are having to deal with, we haven't got enough, or we damaged some, we've lost these. And I keep thinking, why hasn't the industry put a QR code on that delivery that instantly via an app tells both the customer and the supplier exactly which job it is, exactly which product it is. And if they do need some more, they can just click how many bundles they need and it's ordered. Little things like that. It's, uh, and often it's new products that can trigger these ways of thinking. I mean, and I'm gonna put this to Todd, how many, how many times Todd, do you find that uh, a delivery arrives at site and no one's expecting it, no one's there to sign for it and they've got nowhere to put it? You're absolutely right. And that probably comes to, to the point I, I was going to make as you were talking, Simon, that you know there are a lot of things around that are innovations and that can improve things. And when you say, you know, we, we've invented something which changes the way that you should work or changes the, you know, changes the methods that you should work with, you actually come up against a lot of resistance because if you design a product that does away with qualified qualified plumbers on a site or uh, a qualified person in a business, are they are they going to are they going to vote for it? Are they going to try and use it, or are they or are they going to try and resist using it until 
you why it doesn't work. And I think that's that 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 resistance to innovation is something that that is that that, that happens both at a sort of within businesses, but also on a macro level. I and mean, I've seen, you know, and you've seen, I think, before Simon, where the whole sort of testing and accreditation process stops innovation. You know, if it costs a hundred thousand pounds to get your product approved to be used within within a market, then where's the incentive? three years later to come out with the next innovation. And, and the answer is there isn't one, you know, and most companies therefore don't, don't innovate because they don't want to get their products accredited and they don't want to sort of uh, move forward with, the, with, with that sort of regime. So, you know, it's a really interesting environment, especially in, in construction, that you've got a number of different factors which work against innovation, I think. I think David could probably pick up on some of that. I think, you know, you must see that through your day-to-day -day life, the, the longevity of something that's got to go through that process. Yeah, I mean, I guess con construction is a very interesting industry in and of itself. Um, it, it is a sector that does sort of find itself 30, 40 years behind every other sector because it's just so gargantuan and it can't keep up. Like exactly what you're saying. There's, there's a lot of resistance to change in construction. Obviously, from my perspective, there's the government policy and historically European funding to deal with these things. Next month, the UK announced their replacement for European funding. And there are a lot of this is unknown. And this is probably a marketing issue for grant funders. There are lots of pots of money available for these kinds of things that aren't overly difficult to access where you can offset a lot of that cost. But most people have never heard of them and particularly construction because construction doesn't really deal in marketing in the way other industries do. It's still so person to person. It's so who you know is where construction grows. It's a very word of mouth industry. So the uptake of technology isn't really through sort of paid advertisement as such. It, it's more through, if you get in with a contractor, the next contractor will then find out who you are. And that's a lot of the, it, it's, it, there aren't many sectors and industries that still work in that way. So I think that there's lots of opportunity available that just can't really infiltrate into the industry. And I think that, yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the accreditation process is slow, it is difficult, but the advantages of generating a new product that's patentable within the construction sector, that the actual financial reward that can be brought from that far outstrips the process. It's just bringing people into that way of, of viewing it in a slightly different manner. I think there's an education part that needs to happen. And I think there's probably marketing opportunity for, for those pots. I'm, I'm all for marketing opportunity, David. You would know <laughs> that of me anyway. Um, but I was also, I mean, a lot of things we're talking about is probably the value of bringing a specialist in to guide that. So in uh, Simon's case, he's the specialist himself in, in the product manufacturer. In your case, David, you're obviously the specialist in the funder. Hmm. Um, you know, is there maybe uh, go to Simon first, but what is the the benefit, the value of bringing a, someone external from the business in to take or guide that kind of process? You 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 you, you have to take a, a high altitude macro view, first of all, to understand what kind of organization you're dealing with and what their brand and brand value is is all about. And then of course because you're not indoctrinated into their modus operandi and their value system, you are able to see very clearly. What, I, what you can do for, as an external 
specialist is ask the difficult question um, because you don't have a boss to, that you have to impress or worry about insulting. And you can ask the also the very stupid questions, you know, why don't we just do this instead? And of course, sometimes that can go against the grain of their entire product range completely. I've been in situations where I've oversimplified to such an extent that the product's costs were virtually, were so incredibly low compared to what they were currently doing. And we had a viable working product. And it frightens people sometimes because they look at it, they look at innovation, and they go, oh my God, that's going to wipe our entire range off the market. And you end up being the person having to say to them, don't worry, nobody else knows about it yet. But the thing is, you're right, it does overtake everything you've currently got in your portfolio. So shall we do it rather than let the competitor do it? And then they start to get it. And of course, no product ranges get wiped out overnight, but it's a gradual switch over. And as David alluded to, you do have to be careful in construction about creating too much change with experience and you guiding the process. You guide it in such a way that people can see lots of familiar, familiarities and associations with what, what it is you're introducing um, so that they feel still feel comfortable in, in adopting. And one of the things I learned to do very early on is a methodology called direct substitution. You know, if, if there's a certain mode of practice that uh, people are feel safe and secure with on the construction site, then make sure your new product follows that a little bit so that you're almost substituting rather than completely changing the way they do things. Then it makes the switch over a little bit easier. In construction in particular, it, that's an important one because you're often dealing with skilled workers. They do know what they're doing and they need something that is, is new and better and stronger, but they can see the logic in it. And in order to engender that feeling and those thoughts, you have to follow a little bit the process of what they're comfortable with. I think I've probably asked the question of Todd. I think the fear piece has come up from both David and, and Simon there. You know, you would be in that client position quite often from an external specialist. What point is that pushing that button for that specialist to come in as part of your team? Where does that come from, Todd? At what point does that sort of external need come in? I think um, often within a within a business, the people who are charged with product development and innovation become part of the team and part of the culture and start to accept the agreed norms within the business. So they they don't challenge things because they they might say, you know, we've done that before, we tried that and nobody liked it, or the business wouldn't like that because. Um, so they, they they start to agree with the sort of given cultural norms within within the business. So I think when you when you bring somebody in from outside and make sure that everyone feels safe with that in terms of the, you know, you're not, you're not challenging the product development team um, with their jobs. You're not saying to them, look, I brought this guy in because you can't do this. You're saying, I, I, you know, I want to bring this person in to, to, to challenge us, to make us think in, you know, along a different, a different path. I think it can be, it can be really invigorating and that's when you need to do it. I think, you know, certainly in my career, I've been in that position where, I've got a really good team working on it, but they can't get past this sort of given 
the given yeah the norms the cultural constraints the 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 feeling that they you know that there's things they can't say and can't do because it would challenge the manufacturing team or challenge the purchasing team or might upset the the, the manu- managing director etc cetera, etc cetera. you know so i think it's always been it's always been useful it's it's you know and sometimes what you do is you confirm that some of the things that you think are right you know you'll go through a, a lot of different iterations and you'll think about things in a different way and you'll say yeah that those given assumptions are still the same you know we 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 still can't do that i think i think it's you know it's it's interesting what simon says um, about products challenging whole sort of uh, product portfolios and and the truth is that doesn't happen very often you know it, a lot of a lot of changes is iterative so it's a new improved or a, a a slight improvement that can that that can be incorporated as a new excel version or a, a you know gives you margin opportunity etc so it's not often you're looking at something and saying oh dear you know we're getting rid of the combustion engine we've got to we've got to go electric and we've we've got till 2030 to do it you know it, it, it it's more often that you're sort of talking about hey there's this new carburetor that will give us one mile per hour better better consumption and and therefore let's do it now that makes absolute sense Todd and I completely understand that for me obviously being brought in as a, an external specialist uh, ourselves I you can see how that builds. I would have thought for, for David, it might be a different entry in. So when you come in, is it through a, an accounts, uh, someone from an accountancy perspective, or are you brought in as part of the team? Because at the end of the day, funding innovation, it, it, it's got to be affordable, um, but also it's something you, you can't afford not to do. I think it depends on what stage the innovation's at and which funding route is being looked at. When it comes to grant funding for things, you, you sort of need to be ahead of the game. So you need to understand what is going to technically change to be able to justify why you want this money from this pot. When you're talking about an R&D tax credit, then generally you're past the fact. And so you're looking back and saying, what qualifies? How do you branch this in? So I think it, it, it semi-depends. The, the technical entry level is useful when you're looking for funding ahead of time. Um, the accounts is useful when you're looking for an injection after you've you've you know you've done something and there's probably something available to you but it, it varies from from one to one i mean i think also the the different specialist has a different entry route too as a product designer highly technical really integrating into a team for a funding person that's not true <laughs> we we need to understand technically what's happening yes but the reality is we need to know what's out there different and i think this is with construction in particular I think this is a it's a really difficult minefield to navigate and get through. I think there are two things that sort of jump out. One is I think cynicism is a really good thing. A- any specialist consultant coming in to talk about finances, particularly with HMRC, should be met with cynicism because you are talking about HMRC. They are a gargantuan behemoth. You don't want to get on the wrong side of them. You absolutely need to know that the person you're talking to knows what they're talking about. But the second part is construction has a whole language unto itself. It, it no one in construction talks about innovation it's not the way things are described you you talk about the new product you talk about solving a problem you talk about making it easier and oh my goodness that site went horribly how do we not have that or how do we fix this that they're not the same words that are used in policy so when you read the legislation around grant funding when you lead or the criteria for grant funding the legislation around tax credits that there's often a, a whole translation piece that needs to come into that 
So a specialist needs to be able to one talk on site and, and have the have the lingo, know how things are being described and pick up the opportunities, but also translate that into what the, the grant funder or HMRC are looking for to be able to say this is how it meets the criteria. So I, I think as a, as a funding specialist, there's, there's a, a slightly different route in. And with construction, it needs to be relational. A cold call shouldn't ever really work in construction. <laughs> I would say that certainly on some of the larger projects that I've been involved in as a supplier in the, in the past, that actually a lot of those sort of really good project managers and project directors and the construction companies behind them are really interested in innovation. It's, you know, they, they want, they want integration. They want offsite manufacturing and integration of product. They want to reduce the amount of labor on, on site and, um, you know, the, the, the amount of work and that, and they want to improve the quality of the, the projects that they're, they're producing. I, I do think they, they want that innovation. I'm not sure they often are looking to others to, to bring it to them. And I think possibly one of the problems is that there are so many people in the chain from the sort of client, the architect, the main contractor, the subcontractor, that even when somebody suggests something that's innovative, getting all those different parties to buy into it. You know, I, I've had the experience previously where the main contractor and the client are extremely keen to improve recycling on the site and the cost of recycling so they don't want packaging and they don't want timber going to site they want innovative packaging so that they can collapse it return it that type of thing getting that to be adopted through the whole chain of the contract is almost impossible because you'll get to the actual person who's going to pay for the product which is usually the subcontractor and say you need to pay £10 more for this recyclable product and then we'll give you that £10 back when you recycle it. They won't do it, but they will pay £260 for a, for a skip on site to put the packaging in. Yeah, it's the what you know um, sort of thing, yeah. isn't it? People do what they know. And, and again, I think construction is very different to most. You, you, you will have people that are very stuck in the way. This is how it's done. We will do it this way. Yeah. And then have the complete opposite standing right next to them saying, can we do this better? And it, it is a conflict. Um, and I think conflict is the only word that can really be used to describe it. I, I don't think that construction isn't innovative. It, the complete opposite. It, it's one of the most innovative sectors that there are. It's constantly changing, constantly improving. That I think the difficulty is that the language breaks it down. So, I mean, you, you manufacture doors. Doors are a piece of technology, but they would only ever really be described as a piece of technology if you're integrating smart technology into it. But actually, the door itself is a piece of technology in and of itself and I think that the language breaks down in construction very quickly and people start to disassociate themselves and that's probably true for the recycled packaging as well that the reason they wouldn't want to do it is that they that they haven't had it described in a way they haven't seen the benefit of doing it that way that's a benefit to them to then be onboarded and do that but if it was one of their mates in the pub who come along and said we've got this new recycled packaging it'd be great if we could do this they'd be all over it and, and it, that, it's that difficulty of infiltrating construction is really tough. One of the things that I found really interesting recently is talking to the modular house builders because they're taking construction and putting it into a manufacturing environment. And therefore, they, they, they want consistency. They want to improve quality. They want to 
improve the efficiency of the throughput of the product that they're doing. So they're looking into the finite detail of how do you fit a window, a door? How do you deal with tolerances? How do you, you know, can we do away with gap filling, et cetera, and, and therefore a process? Can we make a more stable product so that it, so that it doesn't crack up when it's been moved, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's, a, there's an enormous amount of innovation and innovation thought going on in that, in, in that industry. And actually, I think it'll drive back into core construction because there'll be processes that they use, you know, even if it's sort of large format boards and, and, and things like that, so they have less cuts and less gap fills, et cetera. I think, I think, I think those sorts of things will feed back into, into, into construction quite a lot. No, I don't disagree with you, Todd. I think that's very much the case. And certainly modular house building is a really good example of how that will drive change. I think maybe from Simon's perspective, I'd be really interested to hear, you know, from a design perspective, innovation is, is your lifeblood, it's what you do. How do you integrate technology with that innovation? The tech that's really impacted the design of hidden products um, in a very helpful way is, is on the design side and the uh, computer-aided design side where we're now able to model very accurately, three-dimensionally, everything we're doing. But not only that, um, about 20 years ago, I started using uh, a process called stereolithography, which is a slightly more accurate way of doing um, uh, 3D printing. It gives you a more production quality finish. And um, being able to sit down in front of clients very quickly with an innovative solution, albeit made out of um, a polymeric based material, speeded up the process, as has some of the technology that's housed within the subcontractors and the OEMs, such as laser cutting technology, just for example, has meant that previously where you'd be tooling up to make a, a product at huge uh, capital costs, you're now able to simply send a file to a machine, the shape is cut out, and then a, a quick bend on another part of the workshop, and you've suddenly got a new hanging device, a new fixing device that could actually be tested in anger um, on site. And certain areas of the industry need that rapid response, and being able to deliver that is, is key. Um, London Underground, for example, work that's being done there when they need to carry out a quick repair. It needs something novel and innovative. And within only a week or so, it's possible to have something ready to go on test within their own facility within, within that time. The, the, in terms of something being technical, we are able to assess performance much better now. The testing facilities are now all digital, and so it's easy to capture data, analyze that data more accurately, and understand the products during the development process a little bit better, because you're able to identify things like primary and secondary mechanisms of failure. And of course, in construction, failure is quite an important word. It's something that really lasers my focus at that point when something's about to break, because you have to then balance that with, well, where are we regards to the rest of the structure, the building? What's the frame doing? What's the serviceability design limit based on the Eurocode standards for that particular piece of material? So your product is intrinsically linked to what the substrates or the main primary structural materials are also capable of. 
so there is this envelope of limitations which now can all be modeled electronically before we actually go to site in the first place so the end game really is the tech has really helped develop high, higher more accurate levels of confidence before we actually put a fixing in somebody's hands and say have a go with this see what you think I think that's really interesting, Simon, and probably takes me on to sort of a, a slightly direction, different direction of travel. And that is that the pandemic has, I think, stalled so much over the last two years. It's going to be interesting and maybe ask each of you to get that, you know, crystal ball out to see what the future is. But, you know, coming out of that sort of paused state, where do you see, um, you know, the, the, the business, the industry uh, it, it is construction and building products sort of is it going to rapidly come out of the starting gates with innovation and new opportunity and has it been working on ideas behind the scenes for the last two years or has it really been you know put to sleep under a blanket ready to reawaken and it, it's a slow reawakening maybe I'll start with David and then come back through to Todd and, and come back to you at the end if that's okay Simon. I probably wouldn't say that construction was paused during Covid it, it definitely took a hit, but it was one of the one of the main industries that just kept on piling through and all of the rules meant that everybody was still allowed on the trains and allowed on site. I don't think it necessarily paused. I think there's probably been an acceleration in digital adoption. I think a lot of companies are now, that, that pre, again, this isn't necessarily innovative for the entire industry, but for individual businesses, will now be adopting doing their health and safety and their risk assessments on mobile, just using an app or rather than going around with a sheet of paper and having a site manager do it for every Tuesday morning, it's done in 30 minutes on an app now. Permits to work, uh, there's a company that have created an innovative, an innovative app that now deals with that. So I think there's more adoption taking place of digital practices on site. I, I don't think things have necessarily slowed down or, or have stopped, they've just kept going. And I, I mean, Todd mentioned the, the modern methods of construction that are now being adopted. That, they're starting to come in, they're starting to be used in more places. I guess one of the difficulties with construction is it's, it's huge. We're not talking about AI and machine learning, which is, okay, how do we just iteratively, iteratively improve this machine learning to do the next thing? You, you have software coming out for site management. You have uh, low cement grade concrete coming out. You've got flexible concrete. You've got new bricks. Uh, new fixing methodologies, new roof type. The, the, the whole thing is constantly moving and, and it's moving in every direction. And I think there's, there's, there's a difficulty is in keeping companies moving forward all the time. Um, for a main contractor like Mace, who've got thousands of members of staff and employees, they have a person for each of those roles. They're, they're, they're looking at BIM. For the, the subcontractor that's working up the road um, that wants to break into Mace, they can't, they can't get up to speed with BIM modeling because they've not really got that opportunity to bridge the, the gap. The innovations happened at one point, but it can't be caught up by the rest of the industry. I think construction struggles a little bit with that. I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think the material shortage has definitely contributed yeah. to some of that, that slowness. And Todd, what were your thoughts on that? I'd completely agree with David, actually, that... that that I don't think there was a pandemic pause in, in construction. Uh, you know, it was it was two days at the most, March 23rd to March the 25th, and then, then everyone went back to site. And at that point, I think construction showed how flexible and nimble it is. 
in that it had to work in a completely different ways. It had to put two meter distancing in, it had to use different techniques and it, and it, and it set those things up. It set up flexible shifts. It's, you know, it, lots of things on big sides to, to work within that. So, you know, and, and I think it's driven innovation, to be honest with you. When you, when you go back to what David was saying about innovation isn't just about products, it's about processes. Um, I mean, I now work on, a, on, a, on an app, a safety app that tells me if anything's happened, if there's a hazard at one of my sites, I can, I can put a safety observation in on the app, et cetera. That wasn't there two years ago. And that's, I think, been driven by that type of thing. And if you look, you know, you look at how many jobs had to go from being two person jobs to one person jobs because you couldn't have two people working within two meters of each other. There's, there's all sorts of innovation gone on in sort of lifting products on site and moving products into, into position and fixing products, et cetera, so that you can do it as a one-person job. And, and, and I do think for a lot of, a lot of society, there's been a, a lot of innovation. I mean, it's, it's throughout, isn't it? No, I think you're right. I think that sort of adapt and being able to remain relevant and, and being agile are all the right words for what's happened over the last two years. And it's for you, Simon, with your crystal ball looking maybe beyond that, because I know your creative head will be uh, one step uh, ahead of me anyway. You know, where's that crystal ball for, for you in terms of that uh, people adapting and moving beyond the pandemic? I think um, just just taking a step back very briefly to a trend that I, I observed pre-pandemic, and that was towards creating designs that removed the need for expensive, highly skilled labour on the shop floor was very much a driver. And by doing that, it was often more of an issue where you had less standardised products going out to the market. In other words, organisations that, that were adding value by being able to deliver almost bespoke on items that were going into commercial buildings all over the world. And being asked to design that away, thereby allowing you to reduce your costs because of you can reduce the level of skilled labor on the shop floor, but then you can focus what skilled labor you have got onto, do, onto doing really bespoke, high value, high margin items rather than standard production. This is very much a trend. And because as most manufacturers face ever increasing cost increases, this was a trend that started to come in pre-pandemic. How through design can we reduce the cost of producing our product or reduce the footprint of what we do? Can we, how much can we reduce the amount of highly skilled labor that we need to produce products? And that brings back to your question, the crystal ball. The, key ob the only observation I can make so far is that I think now because of the pandemic and because of the fact we've left Europe and created supply chain issues, Materials are suddenly beginning to be recognized as an extremely valuable commodity. And there's a different level of regard and respect for our raw materials now. And that makes me think that we'll be looking at buildings that can be deconstructed at the end of their life more readily in a more practical way where the majority of materials used can be then redeployed. I think that is becoming more of an issue and it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over the next few years but 
as our basic raw materials become more expensive, I don't really think we have any choice, really. We, 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 we can't just go around welding everything together and then just bulldozing it into the ground and, and scrapping all this really good structural steel that's gone through a furnace and rigorous tests in order to become what it is. I think we need to start to find ways of looking after those materials and finding ways to reshape and, and reuse them. No, I think you're absolutely right, Simon. For, for me, I, and I guess sort of rounding up our conversation is that I believe there are, there are certain things that inspire others. Uh, and from my perspective, you know, you have your own mantras or your own sort of, you're waving your flag of, of, of you know, want to get your message across. For me, it's strategy, 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 you know, plan, be aware of what you're doing and, and think ahead and, and, and look back to think ahead. But at the end of the day, create a strategy. I mean, for you, Simon, if you were leaving anything to inspire others, you know, what would your mantra be in summing up this conversation? Don't be afraid to get out in the workshop and try your idea. Often, um, I've heard many lead designers talk about the fact that the best ideas have often come from the least qualified people. So if you've got an imagination and a little bit of creativity, do not worry if you're surrounded by PhDs, because quite often they will find 20 ways of not doing something theoretically, rather than naively, naively going out onto the workbench and trying something because you never know what you might find. The amount of apprentices I've helped when I was a younger man who I've set them on a task out in the workshop to do something very specific and they failed. But in through failing, they've come in and said, I couldn't get it to do that, Simon, but look what it does. And it'll do something completely off piece that we weren't expecting. And you suddenly realize that's actually a very good idea. It's not what we were set out to do, but that's a product. Now let's go out and find a market for it. I think that's a great way of thinking. Todd, what about you? What's your, your inspirational lead I think, behind? I, th I think we'd go back to the conversation we had and, and, and challenge the, the accepted norms within the business and, and don't be afraid to bring you know, external support in to do that, to, to, to help you think in, in a different direction. You know, it, and that's the only way you're going to challenge the accepted norms and, and to innovate. No, absolutely. And I think also be honest when you don't understand something yourself and look to others, because I think that we all have our own skill bases. And I think yeah. that's something else is is sort of that collaborative approach. David, what about you? What's your going to be your inspirational mantra for us? I'm, I'm going to build on what Simon was saying, get on the workbench and do stuff, take the risk. But within that, innovation does require risk. And I think that obviously I'm very biased with the specialist being being called in. But it's surprising how much money is available to take risk. And I think most of the time people would never believe that for every pound they spend, there's 30p that they can receive back just for trying something because it, it just doesn't quite match your expectation. But I'd say if you do want to give something a go, explore if there are ways of funding that that will take some of the risk away from you.